0: Good morning community. My name is Brian Hoover. I'll be doing the scripture reading today. We're continuing in the Gospel of John in chapter 18. If you're using the Bibles in the pews, you can find that on page 850. You can also follow along on either of the screens. We'll be starting in verse 1 and reading through verses verse 14. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Praise be to God for his word.
1: Good morning. My name is Tony Pitts. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Before I get started with my sermon, um, I wanted to share something. I I read an article this week. Uh, It it was kind of written by an angry (coughs) pastor, uh, and what he was angry about was, was a statistic he had read, that the average lead pastor lasts for four years in a local congregation, four years, and then they move on to another church, or they leave the ministry altogether, um, and I, I just wanted to give a quick shout to uh, a guy who's been here for, for 10 years today, um, <laughs> and I just encourage you, if you've appreciated his ministry, if you've been blessed by it, let him know face to face, send him an email, send him a card. Um, it's a rare thing that, that a pastor stays in one local church with one group of people for 10 years and it's a, it's a real blessing. All right, um, so we're going to get into John 18 here. Um, so I have the, the privilege this morning of, of preaching um, from what is a very dramatic and also familiar passage. Um, the, the drama of the passage would seem to make it easy to preach, um, but the familiarity of it, I think, presents a challenge. It's, it's kind of like uh, watching a rerun of your favorite show. Um, I love Seinfeld. I, I've seen most of them 10 times. I still laugh, uh, but it, it is a challenge to enjoy a, a show that you've seen over and over again. And most of you have heard this passage preached many times. You've seen it depicted in movies, television shows. Um, and there's a possibility that because of that, it, it stops being amazing to you. And so I'm hoping uh, to restore, or maybe for the first time, help you to be amazed at, at what's going on in this passage. So will you pray with me? Father God, um, I, I echo uh, my brother Scott's prayers, Lord, that uh, you, are, you are awesome and, and at times we, we may forget that, Lord that that you are the awesome creator, you are the God who who watches over us, who gives us all we need um, and ultimately who who gives us yourself, Lord God, um, May the truth of that change us, Lord, that the God of, of the universe has given us himself in the person of Jesus Christ and uh, I pray that he would be lifted up high this morning as I preach from your word. It's in his name I pray, amen. So we've been in John's gospel for a few months now and we've titled the series That You Might Believe. We've titled it this way for a good reason. Uh, John tells us in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 as his gospel's closing up. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his Disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. We see in these verses that John wants us to believe, we see what He wants us to believe and why He wants us to believe. I'm going to back up here and define a term that gets used a lot by those of us in the church without being defined oftentimes. That word being gospel. I think the guys that preach here regularly remind us of the meaning but if you're not a regular here the meaning might be unclear. The word gospel simply means good news. So what is this good news that John is wanting us to believe? It's in these verses that John is crystal clear about why he's writing this book we call the Gospel of John. He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, or the Messiah, or the Savior. Um, Most of us are familiar with the fact that Christ is not Jesus' last name, but rather a title. Um, He's the Savior. He tells us why he wants us to believe it, that by believing you may have life in his name, and not just any life, but a life with Jesus forever. So who or what is this Christ John is talking about? I think to a Jewish reader, this would have been obvious. All through the Old Testament, the prophets are pointing forward to the coming of someone who would save God's people. And save them from what? From the brokenness of this world. You can ask even the staunchest atheists, does it seem like there's something wrong with the world? And they will answer yes. You need only watch a few minutes of the news to conclude things are not the way they should be. So in the midst of this brokenness, God's prophets have encouraged God's people to look forward to someone that would save them from this brokenness. Someone who would make everything right again. Did you catch that? I said, again. So there was a time when things were right in the world. Yes, a man and a woman created by God, living in a garden, in intimate relationship with the God who created them. No tears. No pain no death, no toil in their labor. They had meaningful work to do, but it wasn't toilsome. Things were awesome. And these two ruined it. I'd summarize the way they ruined it then is the same way we ruin it today. They thought they knew better than the God who made it all. This rebellion against their creator caused them to be cursed and kicked out of the garden where they were to live in everlasting relationship with a loving God. We call this the fall. Ever since this fall, we are experiencing the ripples. The effects are in us. This idea that we were born sinful is one of the most controversial ideas presented in the Bible. Philosophers have presented alternative views of humanity that suppose that people are born good and are then corrupted by a broken world. But the Bible tells us that we are part of, not just victims of, the brokenness in this world. And I would describe this as bad news. Although I'm guessing it's, it's not news to most of you. It's hard to imagine the person who would look around at today's world and think things seem to be as they ought to be but can you look at yourself and say the same thing? I am not as I ought to be. John has written this for a specific reason, that we might believe Jesus is the Christ, the long awaited savior of the world, and that it's our sin he's come to save us from, and the mess that we've made of God's world with our sin. For the sake of clarity, I I keep using the word sin, I'm going to give a quick explanation of what sin is, a, a very basic definition of sin. It means to miss the mark. During ancient archery competitions, a spotter would stand near the target. The target simply a large white circle with a small maybe red, maybe gold circle in the middle. And the archers, quite a ways off, would shoot their arrows. Most of them, if skilled, would hit the big white target, but a lot of them would not hit that smaller center target. The spotter would go up, take a look to see if they had in fact hit the small bullseye of a target. And if they had, he would yell out, Mark. But if they had missed, even by a quarter inch, he would yell, Sin. This simply means missing the mark. You've taken your shot and you've missed the mark, and to miss it by a quarter inch is the same as missing it by a mile. It's the failure to love God, the failure to love our neighbors the way God tells us to, that is the way that we miss the mark. It's in our actions, it's in our failure to act. It's in our thoughts. It's even in our attitudes. Many of us have learned to think of sin as a sort of demerit. There are good things we do that get us points with God, and there are bad things we do that make us lose points with God. When it's all added up in the end, if we've done more good than bad, we're okay with God. This is a view that does not understand just how holy God is. This more good than bad idea before a God who is holy, holy, holy is similar to this. Let's imagine you're gonna have a couple of your friends over for brunch and you decide you're gonna serve them an omelet. There's four of you and so you're making a dozen eggs and, and you crack 11 of those eggs into a bowl for the omelet. When you get to the 12th egg, As you're cracking it, it's falling into the bowl, you smell something, you realize the egg is rotten. If you've ever smelled a rotten egg, it is uh, not good. So what would you do? Stir it in, mix it up, hope that your guests don't notice. This is the strategy of my bad things and my good things. I'm gonna just mix them all together and serve them up to a holy God. The problem with this is our sin is a stench in the nostrils of a holy God, like a rotten egg in our nostrils. It's a stench great enough for him to say, I I don't wanna be close to this. This is what caused Adam and Eve to be expelled from the garden. It's what causes us to become objects of God's wrath. God's wrath. There, I said it. It's kind of a running joke on the staff. I'm the guy that loves to talk about God's wrath. Uh, 30 years ago, when I was part of a, a ministry that trained church members to share their faith, they, they gave me the nickname Turner Burn Tony. And it, I assure you, I never said those words to anyone. Uh, But I did then, and I still think it's important that we understand what is in this cup that Jesus talks about in this John 18 passage. Speaking of John 18, let's get to it. I wanted to see if I could break the record for the longest introduction ever given at Community, and I think I might have nailed it. When Jesus had spoken these words, it starts out, these words being the high priestly prayer that Scott mentioned, the prayer he prays in chapter 17. In this prayer, he acknowledges the hour has come, the hour when he'll be led to the cross. He prays to God the Father that he's not lost any of those that God the Father has given him. He prays for their unity with himself as well with God the Father he prays for their unity with each other he prays all this for those who will believe on account of them as well for us here today who believe in Jesus after he's prayed this he and his disciples travel to a garden it's a garden they've gone to before in fact they've gone there so often that Judas knows there's a high probability that Jesus will be there John here refers to Judas as Judas, who betrayed him. He repeats it in verse 5, almost like it's Judas's last name. You get the sense that John is not crazy about Judas. Verse 3 tells us that with Judas, who betrayed Jesus, there's a band of soldiers and some officers with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Right here, I'd like you to pause and maybe get out of that rerun mindset. This is a story... uh, you've heard before, it's a story you've seen. But I'd like you to really think about what's happening here. This band of Roman soldiers, most commentators think, at least 200, possibly hundreds more than that. Along with officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, these are uh, basically a Jewish police force, all of these men are there to arrest an unarmed preaching carpenter. Seems weird. Um, and I know in a lot of movies, this depiction, there, there's only a handful of soldiers. And that's probably because actors and costumes are expensive. <laughs> you add a few Roman, few hundred Roman soldiers to a scene, and, and the budget goes way up. But what really makes this event something incredible is who it is that's being arrested. If we turn back to the first chapter of John, he tells us, if you want to turn there, um, it might help as you read along, because I'm going to read 14 verses here. John is, is telling us who this person is that's being arrested, and it's not just a carpenter, not just any preacher. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And pay attention to verse 14 here. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and grace. And truth. Let that sink in. Verse 1 tells us that the Word was with God and the Word was God. He created everything that was created. Verse 14 tells us he became flesh and dwelt among us. This man, this carpenter preacher, was with God, is God, is the creator. This is who these men are coming to arrest. God's creatures. In God's creation, carrying weapons, coming to arrest him. It's bizarre. It's not ordinary. It's not just a little dramatic. It's bizarre. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus knows what is going to happen to him. How is that? I just told you. He's God. He knows why they're there. He knows what they intend for him. And he doesn't run and hide. He steps forward and he asks them, who are you looking for? Make no mistake, Jesus is not a helpless victim here. He is a willing participant. When they say they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus says the words, I am, and this group of armed soldiers, police, religious leaders, they're knocked to the ground. God in the flesh just slightly unveils his deity and this is the effect. There's a theological name for this. Um, I just learned this this week and I thought it was really cool. So I'm gonna share it with you and it will be on the quiz. (laughs) It is the Mysterium Tremendum. Sounds like something from a Marvel movie. The Mysterium Tremendum, I'm like, ah, that's, that describes this pretty cool. This is the quality of God that both it draws us in, but it also absolutely humbles us. We are simultaneously intrigued and undone at the same time. And the course of a life that has experienced this is changed. It's never the same. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Moses, Elijah, Ezekiel, the Apostle Paul, just to name a few, all utterly humbled by just a glimpse of God's holiness. This is what this crowd of men experienced, just a little, as Jesus utters the words, I am. And what seems so strange is that they seem unchanged by it. As far as I know, we don't, for the most part, see a change of heart in these men One exception, Judas, we read in Matthew 27. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elder, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went, And hanged himself. We see here the incredible arrogance of sinful man. Confronted with God Himself, their instinct is to get rid of him. Why? Because he threatens their power. This passage raises an obvious question. Why would anyone that witnessed Jesus' supernatural power still want to get rid of him? We're tempted to ask this as if it only happened a long time ago with Pharisees and Roman soldiers. But the truth is it happens every day. I remember a t-shirt I saw years ago. Um, On the front it said, two things in life are certain. Number one, there's a God. And on the back it said, number two, you're not him. I'd add to that a number three, that that's good news. Amen? Amen. It's good news that there's a God, and it's good news that we're not him. As we look at these next verses from our passage today, we'll see some of the reasons that that's good news. He asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. This is verse 7, 8, 9. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And now to the Christian, I say, think about this. Think about what Jesus is saying here. We who have placed our faith in Jesus as our Lord, we've been given to Jesus the Son, by God the Father, and us not getting lost depends on him. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all know how things would turn out if it depended on us. Paul focuses on this in Romans 8, starting in verse 31. Um, If you want to turn there, Romans 8, it's on page 888 in your pew Bible. I'm going to read from there, and it'll be easier for you to pay attention if you're following along in your bible all right this is romans 8 starting at 31 what then shall we say to these things if god is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. All right, so let's go back to John's gospel. And just as Jesus is saying, take me, not my disciples, Peter decides to take matters into his own hands. Verse 10 and 11 Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? We talked a little about this cup. What is it? It is the cup of God's wrath. God's wrath against our sin. What is it that we've done that is deserving of God's wrath? Simply put, God in the person of Jesus Christ has offered himself to us. I'll be your God, and you will be my people. And to that we have said, no thank you. I've got this. It's the same no thank you that came from Adam and Eve in the garden when they disobeyed God. This Jesus who loves us with a divine, sacrificial love says, I will drink the cup that you deserve to drink. And those of us who reject him say, no, thank you. A few years ago, when I was teaching tennis, we used to play a game called Around the World. So you get a group of kids, maybe you have 15 kids, 16 kids, uh, and you put eight of them on each side of the net. One kid takes a shot, and then he has to run to the other side of the court You get at the end of the line. If you make three mistakes, you're out. So little by little, there's fewer and fewer kids. You've got to run more. You've got to run faster. Some of the kids that don't like to run realized, if I get out quickly, I can go sit down. (laughs) So we made a rule. The first two kids that get out have to keep running until the game's over. Well, one young man who didn't like running purposely hit his first three shots 10 feet out and went to sit down. And I walked over and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm sitting down. Can't you see that? I said, yeah, I see what you're doing, but we explained what the rules were and you have to keep running until the game is over. And he looked me in the face and said, no, thank you. Yeah, it was weird. Uh, (laughs) It took a while for my brain to register. Did you just say no thank you? And he said it very politely. I explained to him that uh, that's not an option here. And he said, no, I I just, I don't really want to run today. um, But thanks. And kind (laughs) of shushed me away. And at that point, um, my blood pressure was going up a little. I walked away. Uh, Because I knew his dad, and I knew I'd see his dad later that evening. And so when his dad asked me, how did my son do at clinic, uh, I told him the story. And dad assured me that when he got home, his son would receive an adjustment of his attitude. Um, I think we are often like this stubborn young man, believing that our polite rebellion will be overlooked by God. But God does not simply overlook our sin. He doesn't fail to punish our evil fully. The good news is that he sees our rebellion and he takes our place and allows us to go free. Not free to continue rebelling, but free to obey. And with his loving help. I'm running out of time here Let's look at verses 12 uh, through 14. This band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So Jesus is taken to Annas. John tells us he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest. So why are they taking Jesus to his father-in-law? So apparently Annas was the high priest before Caiaphas. This was supposed to be a lifetime appointment. For some reason, several high priests had been deposed, but many of the people still looked at the previous high priest as the high priest. And so that's why Jesus being taken to Annas. What really stands out here, though, is this call back to what Caiaphas said back in the 11th chapter of John's Gospel, that it would be better for one man to die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Without even knowing what he was saying, Caiaphas was prophesying that Jesus would die and by his death spare many. Through his resurrection and ascension to heaven, give us the assurance that not one of those that the Father has given him will be lost. I want to end with an encouragement for this upcoming year. Uh, my guess is that with an election approaching, we will have lots of encouragement from the world to behave like Peter in the garden. This sort of culture war mentality has often caused well-meaning Christians to be more concerned with defeating the lost than seeing them come to know Jesus. When you think about people with values that oppose Jesus, are you more passionate about defeating them or seeing them healed and reconciled to God? I would encourage you to hear the Lord's voice in Peter's ear saying, put away your sword. While John's gospel doesn't record it, in Luke's account of these events, Jesus heals Malchus' ear. Let's remember that in Christ, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, not the ministry of ear removal. We can trust that even if our sword remains in its sheath, we will not be lost. Listen to these words from Peter later on in his life after having his attitude adjusted. This is 1 Peter 3.15. This same Peter who wanted to solve problems with his sword, now mature in Christ, says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. If you're here today, unsure about Jesus, unsure about what it means to follow him, talk to someone that knows him. There are a lot of people here who know Christ. Don't say no thank you to the best offer you will ever get in this life. Get to know the God that will hold you in his hand and never let you go. Let's pray. Lord, we we praise you and we thank you we thank you for your willingness to go to the cross, your willingness to drink the cup that we deserve to drink, Lord, that we could never drink and live. And we're thankful that you take your righteousness and give it to us as a gift, Lord, for all of us who believe. And We praise you and we lift you up high. In Jesus' name, amen.